I just briefly want to talk about one final thing to wrap up the First Testament, and that is the topic of the decline of the prophets. That as we go from the pre-exilic to the exilic to the post-exilic prophets, we see a decline in the prophets as time goes by. And I'm going to highlight a few things to show and illustrate this to you. Remember the prophets. What made you a prophet was that you were brought into the divine counsel of Yahweh. You were brought into God's divine counsel where people, the sons of God and angelic beings, uh, um, worked with God and they helped make decisions about the future of the world and the direction of people and judgments and blessings with God. Now, God doesn't need help. He doesn't need advisors, but he's a relational God that wants to work and partner with people because he's a relational God. And so the prophet was the only human who was brought into the divine counsel of Yahweh. Therefore, the prophet was the only human who knew the will of Yahweh. Therefore, the second job of the prophet was to speak the will of Yahweh to the people because the people wouldn't know the will of Yahweh since they weren't in the divine council. And so he spoke the will of Yahweh to the people, good, bad, whatever. The third job of the prophet was then to hold the people to the covenant, to bring the blessings or to execute them when they did it. And specifically during the time of Samuel and Kings, to hold the king accountable and to condemn him, which we saw that through those books. So that's the prophet. There's three ways that we see the prophets decline. The first way is that the prophets were no longer brought into the divine counsel of Yahweh. Rather, angels were sent to them. So as we move from prophet to prophet to prophet to prophet, we see that the prophets are not being brought into the divine council anymore. And not only are they not being brought into divine council, then they just get visions of Yahweh at far distances. And Yahweh just kind of talks to them at a distance. And then eventually they no longer see Yahweh, they just see angels and the angels bring the messages. If one of the, the definitions of, the, of a prophet is the divine, being brought into the divine counsel of Yahweh, then if you're no longer being brought into the divine counsel of Yahweh, then you're kind of ceasing to be a prophet in the strictest sense of the definition and the function of this. So we see this. With Micaiah in 1 Kings chapter 2, we saw him brought into the divine counsel of Yahweh. And he says, Behold, Yahweh says, Who will go and deceive, or who will go and get Ahab killed? And one being said this, another being said this. He saw all that. We saw Isaiah in chapter 6. He's brought into the divine counsel. And he actually sees Yahweh in the throne. And Yahweh talks to him. And the angel actually comes and puts a call on him. And Yahweh commissions him personally. It's an incredible event. And then with Amos, He's brought in the divine council in chapters 7, 8, and 9, where God and him actually have a conversation with each other. And Jeremiah, he is brought in the divine council in chapter 25. These are all pre-exilic prophets. But by the post, the exilic prophets with Ezekiel, he's not brought into heaven. He's given a vision of Yahweh on his throne, moving out of the tabernacle or the temple, and then Yahweh coming back. And Yahweh does speak to him, but he's not brought into heaven. He's not brought into the decision-making process. He just sees Yahweh in the temple leaving and coming back, and Yahweh talks to him. By the time that we get to Zechariah, Zechariah hardly gets, he doesn't get any divine counsel. He just gets these strange visions and dreams and stuff, and God hardly talks to him. It's only, it's the angels that are talking to him pretty much all the time. And even though Daniel is not a prophet, he just gets dreams and visions, and that's it. Then even with John the Baptist, 400 years later, the prophet, he doesn't go in the divine council ever. He doesn't even speak the will of God to the people. He just calls them to repent. 
And then John, who's not really a prophet, but he gets these visions of heaven. He just sees Yahweh in the great, great, great distance sitting on the throne. And then he gets all these strange visions. And so this idea of being brought into the divine council comes to pretty much a complete end by the end of the post-exilic prophets, and we never see it again, which means in the strictest definition, there's no more prophets according to this. The second way that you see the divine, the, the, the prophets come to an end, sorry, the decline of the prophets, is that the prophets are no longer asked for their input, but are rather told what is going to happen. See, in the very beginning, God says, hey, what do you think we should do? And they say, and God says, okay, let's do that. First place we see this is in Genesis chapter 18. Abraham is brought into the divine council. He's actually talking with God, and God says, hey, should I tell Abraham what we're going to do to Sagamore and get his input? And Abraham's like, I think, I think, I think, I think. And God says, I agree. I won't destroy them if there's more than 10 righteous people. And then he evacuates the righteous people so he can destroy it. We see that. So then you get to um, Moses on Mount Sinai. And he's right there with God. And he says, hey, God, I don't think we should kill them after the golden calf incident. And God says, okay, I'll forgive them. And then God says, I'm going to leave you. I'm going to send my angel instead. And Moses is like, please don't leave me. I think it's a bad idea to do that. And God says, okay. And so you see them directly giving input and God going with this. And Amos chapter 7, verse 6, we see that Amos is given insight. And God says, what do you think we should do with Israel? And Amos says, I think you should forgive them, God. And God says, okay, I'll give them another chance. And you see this input and God taking it. By the time we get to the post-exilic prophets, they're not given opinions. They're not input. God never asks Ezekiel once, what do you think we should do? Ezekiel never gives any. He never even has the bravery to even say it. And by the time we get to Zechariah, Zechariah, well, this is the third point. Zechariah doesn't even know what's going on half the time to even give input. The input of the prophets, God no longer asks for it in any kind of a way. And so this is the second thing. The third thing that we see that shows the decline of the prophets is that they, they understand less and less of what's going on. And they have to be told what's going on. Not only do they not give input, they don't even know what's going on half the time. With Amos, here's an example. In Amos chapter 7, verses 7 through 8, God shows them a hand holding a plumb line up against a wall. And God says, hey, Amos, what do you see? Amos could say, I see a hand, I see a string, I see a plumb line, I see a wall, I see the whole thing. He could describe the whole thing. He could say, I see the trees in the background because I'm ADD and I'm just focusing out the window during school. Okay, He could say anything. But instead he says, I see a plumb line, which is the Hebrew word anach, which sounds just like the Hebrew word anach, which means sorrow. Because God in Israel has brought sorrow to God. And God says, you have seen correctly. Of all the words he could say, he gets that God is really upset and really sad. And he sees that thing. And he says, oh, that word sounds like sorrow that God has been demonstrating. That's what I see. And God says, well done. You see correctly. You saw exactly and focused in on what I wanted you to see. We see this again. He shows them a basket of summer fruit. And he could say, I see this and this and this and this. Instead, he says, I see summer fruit. And he uses the word fruit, which is quaises which sounds like quest, which means end. And he says, this is the end of Israel, isn't it? And God says, exactly. The same thing with Jeremiah. When we get to Jeremiah, God says, hey, Jeremiah, what you see? 
And we're not told, but he could have said, he sees a stick. He could have said, I see a branch, I see a stick, I see a staff, I see a dead piece of wood. But he says, I see, I see an almond branch. And the word almond in Hebrew is a ked. And this sounds like watching, which is sokhed. So it's sokhed and sokhed. And so he says, I see an almond branch because that sounds like the word watching, which is what you've been doing over Israel, God. And it's like they're, they're like, it's like when you've been married so long that you're like, have the same thought at the same time or you finish each other's thing. You're like, oh my gosh, that's what's happened. They're so in linked and they're so in tune with God and what he's doing. And so they get it. When we get to Ezekiel, when we get to Zechariah, God says, hey, what do you see? And Zechariah says, I see two olive trees and pipes coming out of them and olive oil. And I see this and this and this and this and this and this. And he's like this ADD child that just sees, describes everything that there is because he can't focus in on one thing. And God never says, well done, you saw correctly. In fact, the angel is like, what? Why did you point all that out? And then he says, what do you think this means, Zechariah? And Zechariah's like, I don't know. And the angel's like, the prophets before you did a better job. <laughs> I mean, he's basically, why don't you get this? Why don't you see this? How can you not see the meaning that's going on? The same thing with Ezekiel. Ezekiel is sitting there. He sees all these dead bones in the ground. And God says, hey, son of man, can these come back to life? And he's like, I don't know, God. Only you know that. Wait a minute. If Elijah can raise a boy from the dead, don't you think he can bring skeletons back? Come on, Ezekiel, think about it. And they, they just they don't even know what's really going on half the time. And over and over again, you can see this. There's at least um, several times where Zechariah says, I don't know what's happening. I don't know what that means. I don't know what that means. I don't know what that means. You can see it over and over and over again. Even with Daniel, he's not a prophet, but even the dreams is like, I don't know what that means. I don't know what the beast was. In fact, I'm so freaked out and I don't know what it is. I'm losing sleep over it. And they're completely out of touch with the meaning of things. And God seems to assume that they should get it because God asked them, Amos, what do you see? And Amos says this, and God says, well done. Then he goes to Zechariah and says, what do you see? And Zechariah, da, 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 da. and God's just like, okay. So he assumes that they should get it, especially when he says, the angel says, why don't you get it? That implies disappointment. They see less and less and less. And when we get to John too, John doesn't know what half the things in the book of Revelation even mean. And he keeps wondering. And John even gets so confused, he starts bowing down to an angel. And the angel's like, no, 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 no. Don't do that. And these three things, this clear idea that the prophets are being further and further and further disconnected, removed from the divine council until they're no longer in it. The fact that the prophets are no longer asked for their input. And God just simply says, this is what's going to happen. And I'm not asking for your input anymore. And the fact that they don't even get what's happening at the time. That's probably why he stopped asking for their input. They don't even understand the things that he's saying anymore. They don't understand the things that he's trying to focus in on. And they don't even know what the point is on the board that's being made. And all these things show a serious decline in the prophets and their ability. And my guess is, is as the people as a whole fell further and further and further away from God, and they became more and more immoral and sinful, then the cream of the crop that God had to pick from to choose a prophet became less and less the cream of the crop as well. If the whole batch begins to be spoiled, then your ability to find a good section to pull out is going to become more and more difficult. 
as the IQ or the spiritual insight of an entire nation falls, then the ability to find and truly insightful people is going to become less and less and less because there are no greatly incredible insightful people that can train these people and help them think that way. And what eventually happens is the prophet dies out. And by the time you get to the Malachi, you don't really have a prophet and the fullest sense of what it means to be a prophet. You have a man who is basically just repeating what God has told him. And anybody can do that. And then after Malachi, the office of prophet ceases completely. And we go into what this thing is called the 400 silent years. Because from 430s, when Malachi stops, all the way till till 30 AD, when John the baptizer comes on the scene and breaks the silence, there's no prophet. Never in the history of Israel, since the days of Moses, have they ever been without a prophet, without a voice of God. And God goes completely silent on them. Now the book of Daniel showed that God was actively involved by force talking about the Greeks and all of them, which is way after Malachi. The Greeks won't come along the scene until the two three hundreds shows that God shows I'm still going to be actively involved with you and I will still have an individual relationship with people by no longer going to speak my will to the people anymore. You're in exile. And so even though they're back in land, the silence of the prophets shows true exile. The silence is not broken until John the Baptist shows on the scene. But like I already mentioned, he's not in the divine council. He's not really speaking the will of Yahweh. He's not giving input into things, and he's not asked to understand deep cosmic truths in any kind of way. He just merely announces the Messiah and calls them to repentance. And anybody can do that. Now, I'm not saying John is not special, because Jesus commended John greatly. But he's not special or unique in a prophetic kind of a sense, even though he is officially called a prophet. But what's interesting is that the one comes after him is Jesus. And Jesus is the prophet in the fullest sense of it. Because he is the divine counsel, and he is the will, the word of God in flesh. And he not only becomes the prophet that they haven't had since Amos and Jeremiah, but he becomes even greater and better than the prophet by going over and beyond what a prophet ever was and could ever do and ever know and successfully even preach to the people. And what's interesting is that when Jesus Christ becomes the prophet, he is the divine counsel of Yahweh. He is the will of Yahweh. He is the voice, the word of Yahweh. By dying the cross, he then prepares a place for us to enter into him, and he enters into us. And so when he remains in us, and we remain in him, and he indwells us through the Holy Spirit, That means the divine counsel of Yahweh has come into us. It means that the will of God is now in us, which means there is no more office of prophet anymore. Because why would you go to a prophet when the greatest prophet that has ever lived is actually indwelling you? It's actually an insult to go to the inferior when the greater is in you. And now all of us have access to the divine counsel because if the Holy Spirit is in you, speaking to you constantly, and Jesus guiding you, you are literally in the divine counsel of Yahweh 24-7 with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. 
And you then know the will of Yahweh. Remember Jeremiah 31. No one will no longer have to be told to know Yahweh because the law will be written on their hearts and everyone will know Yahweh. And the spirit of Yahweh will be poured on all people, young and old, female and male, all that kind of stuff. In some ways, we have literally become the prophet. Male, female, rich, poor, free, slave. Because the greatest prophet, who's greater than all prophets, is in us. The divine counsel is in us. The will of Yahweh is in us. The spirit of Yahweh. Yahweh is in us. The Holy Spirit, Jesus is in us. Though I do believe that some have been gifted with prophecy, the ability to know things about God and the ability to speak God's will in very eloquent, very wise ways. I do not believe that there are prophets in the sense that they are gifted in a higher sense than anybody else to know the will of God in a way that nobody else can. Does that kind of make sense? I do very strongly believe that some people have the gift of prophet, the ability to just be wise and see God at work and to know what he wants and speak that wisdom into your life and to guide you. But nobody is a prophet in the sense that they have access to God and know things about what God wants for us in a way that we don't know and we have to go through them to know it. And so in this sense, if somebody is like, God told me that, you should do this, my answer can legitimately be, then God needs to tell me too. Now, maybe I haven't been listening and you're the wake-up call to get into prayer, but I'm not dependent upon you telling me what God needs, wants me to do. He might have used you as a fellow prophet to wake me up and get out of my apathy or stagnation and listen a little bit better. But once I do that, God will speak to me too because I'm a prophet as well. And so these three things, if you see them and pay attention to them, you see a decline because it's preparing for Christ who enters you and makes you that prophet that no longer do I need you to know God even though we need each other to help follow God and to know him. So relationally, I don't need the prophet to know God. But intellectually, we do need the priesthood of believers to understand the word of God and pray together. But we all come together as prophets now, which means when you're in a meeting, all of us should unanimously agree on something if God is truly speaking to us. Because it's the same spirit in all of us. Does that make sense? Yahweh, I thank you so much for who you are. The amazing God that you are. I thank you that you, through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, have given all of us access to the divine counsel. Have given us all access to your will. So that we can all relationally, intimately know you in a way that was not really true to this level and this intimacy for the people of the First Testament. I thank you that you, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, have given us the desire and the ability to actually be faithful to you in a way that the First Testament people did not have that. Therefore, since we have been given so much more and such greater access to you than those before us, I pray that we would not testify against you, criticize you, insult you in any kind of a way by committing the same apathetic disregard sins towards you 
and then be ignorantly oblivious to the fact that we're doing it like they did. Allow us to tap into what we have, you in us, to have the ability and desire to be faithful in a way that nobody ever could back then. Allow us to truly take a hold of the gift that you've given us and to use it in such a way that it truly brings honor and pleasure to you and we become the witnesses you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.